Welcome to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. Thank you so much for joining the Michigan Minds Podcast. Can you please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your role at the University of Michigan? Absolutely. My name is Dr. Antonio C. Kyler. I am a professor of music and entrepreneurship and leadership, uh, and I'm hired through the Provost's Anti-Racism Initiative. And so I will be working with two other, well, an, uh, one other arts person, as well as two other social work faculty to develop a research and teaching agenda around anti-racism. Wonderful. Thank you. And so in what areas does your research focus? So the central research question I seek to answer and explore in my research is in what ways and to what extent can the creative sector protect and ensure the creative justice of historically discriminated against, marginalized, oppressed, and subjugated peoples? And, and what that is is kind of a big umbrella research question for me to investigate a variety, a myriad of things related to the restitution of African cultural property. Um, I, I just finished a um, co-authored article with some librarian colleagues here at uh, the University of Michigan. We are calling the paper Cultural Policy of the Oppressed. And what we're doing is looking at the ways in which cultural policies around the globe enable or subvert, constrain oppression, um, limiting the creative justice for all people. And so, um, you know, access, diversity, equity, and inclusion is also a model that I use to kind of explore these topics. And it is also the subject of my next book, which is uh, called Achieving Creative Justice in the U.S. Creative Sector. Thank you. You recently authored a report published by the League of American Orchestras titled Racial, Ethnic, and Gender Diversity in the Orchestra Field in 2023. Before we discuss the findings from this report, can you share with us a little bit about the research process, partnerships, period of analysis? Absolutely. So I would say we co-authored uh, the report. It was um, definitely an iterative process. We um, worked on it for about a year and a half. And we use data collected um, annually from orchestras and conducted a secondary data analysis of what's going on in terms of racial, ethnic, and gender diversity in orchestras. We also had an advisory panel made up of orchestral staff, musicians, um, board members to advise us on the report. And I think we went through about maybe eight drafts of the report before we settled on what we released to the public on June 5th. Um, we also had feedback from board members of the League of American Orchestras. Um, and what I most appreciated about the process is that we sought to elevate each group within the report to receive equitable attention in terms of their representation across multiple positionalities within the orchestral field. Uh, also speaking to some of the kind of nuances that each racial group experiences as well as uh, some the gender groups as well. What are the different parts of an orchestra in which the research was divided by and how did separating these individual parts of the orchestra help analyze diversity? So. Um, Throughout the report, we looked at musicians, um, music directors and conductors, board members, executives, and staff. 
And so we really tried to look very holistically and comprehensively at all of the different positionalities that humans can play within the orchestral field and specifically within an orchestra. Um, however, even with our, our attempts to be comprehensive, um, we were not able to include, for example, um, partners or vendors or um, volunteers. And so, again, we use secondary data. So there is a survey instrument that the league uses to collect annual data from its members on. And that um, survey instrument was constructed and designed. And so we tried to keep continuity to uh, with what came before it. Um, but again, you know, really it, we focused on boards, executives, music directors and conductors, musicians, uh, and staff. And can you discuss a few key findings from this report? Absolutely. So um, to start, I will say um, orchestras are very close to achieving gender parity in almost all of those positionalities except for the music director role, which is still primarily um, an artistic leadership role within orchestras. Uh, in fact, there was one woman, uh, Marin Alsop, who was the music director for the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra. Until recently, she left that post, and now there still is, uh, there was a new woman as Marin Alsop left. Atlanta Symphony Orchestra um, engaged Natalie Stutzman as the music director of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. And then there's also um, Joanne Folletta at ba uh, Buffalo Symphony Orchestra. Then when it comes to non-binary folks, their representation across positionalities remain flat. And so that's an opportunity that orchestras have to engage more people when it comes to gender who um, identify as non-binary. When it comes to race and ethnicity, it's a little more complicated. And so what we did was to first try to get um, an assessment of what the results look like when we combine all um, people of the global majority, that's, that being people of African, Arab, Asian, um, uh, Hispanic, indigenous descent. And we see that there is some progress when you're looking at them as a group, but when you take them apart, um, the results are a little more complicated. So for example, when it comes to musicians, Asian, and, uh, Asian Americans are overrepresented in orchestras in comparison to their representation in the national population. Um, and that's not to conflate or encourage this kind of idea of the model minority, where um, there are kind of these um, like stereotypes about like you know Asian Americans being technically proficient but lacking in emotional uh, fortitude when it comes to playing classical music. Um, while they are represented very well when it comes to musicians and other positionalities in terms of staff, executives, um, and music directors, uh, Asian representation is not as as good. Um, another big result for me personally as a black American is that um, black American progress or African American progress in orchestras um, barely moved, um, went from like 1.8% or something like that to like 2.6%. Uh, and so there is lots of work to do around uh, African American representation across all positionalities, as well as with um, indigenous representation as well. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think some of those are the, some of the results that um, kind of stick out to me in my, in my mind. Thank you. And so reflecting on the data from this report, 
how can this research help orchestras accelerate progress and receive support for equity, diversity, and inclusion work? So I'm glad that you asked that question because um, in retrospect, one of the research questions that I wish that we had been able to address was if orchestras were to maintain the level of change um, that they are currently sustaining, by when would they achieve racial parity or gender parity? And uh, the answer would be, I hypothesize, never. Um, and so, but another research question that we could have explored, I think, is um, by how many times do orchestras need to amplify or increase their rate of change to experience racial and gender parity within our lifetime? And I would hypothesize that it would be probably between four uh, to six percent times the rate of change that they're currently performing to be able to, for us to experience racial and gender parity in orchestras. And so what that means is that orchestras have a lot of work to do, but um, I'm going to offer up a micro affirmation and say that it is an opportunity for orchestras who um, since the 90s, cultural economists have been saying to them, you need to diversify your audiences. You need to diversify, like, you know, and so now we're at that, that moment. Um, really, it was George Floyd's murder that served as an inflection point for the conversations that are happening around equity, diversity, and inclusion in orchestras, but in the larger creative sector. And so this report is an enabling tool to help orchestras um, judge themselves, measure their own progress, but also to light a fire underneath them to like do more, to do more to make sure that orchestras um, and their communities and, and fully can enjoy all of the benefits that come with having an orchestra within the community. Thank you. And as the podcast comes to a close, we often like to ask our faculty and researchers, what is one thing you hope listeners remember from our conversation today? One of the things that I hope that listeners remember from today's conversation is that it is very important for us to live creative and expressive lives and everyone has a right to do that and to do that in a way that is authentic to them and representative of their creative and expressive curiosities. Orchestras are just one way to do that. And as we've seen with the report, there are multiple doors in which humans can walk in through to participate fully in orchestras if only orchestras allow them to. Um, and there, for me, are four reasons why orchestras should do this. And number one is it is the right thing to do ethically, um, and the president of the League of American Orchestras, he has said this as well, and, and I've been even more so inspired and appreciative of after the um, Supreme Court's overturning of affirmative action that he came out and the League came out and stands in supporting and continuing this EDI work. The second reason that is important is because as um, 501c3s, uh, which is the status that the IRS gives nonprofits um, to be able to collect donations. Orchestras have a responsibility implicit in that status to serve their entire communities, and their communities are made up of multiple communities and multiple publics. The third reason why um, orchestras should do this work is because um, it helps them avoid discrimination lawsuits. Right? So there's that legal and political ramification for, for doing this important work. And then the final reason is that it, um, adopting an anti-racist, anti-sexist, anti-cisgenderist, anti-oppression ethos and practice is financially lucrative. 
right? You know, there was a study that uh, came out in 2022 that found that from 1990 to 2019, the U.S. economy lost $51 trillion as a result of racism. And orchestras are uh, among, you know, many cultural organizations that are constantly talking about having a lack of funding available to them. And I can't help but to say, um, well, you would have access to $51 trillion more if you were to adopt the ethos and practice of anti-oppression. And so that's what I hope folks remember and take away from today's discussion. Wonderful, thank you. And is there anything else you would like to share? Um, the last thing that I'll say is, uh, particularly for orchestras, um, the first EDI or DEI, depending on you know the acronyms that you use, professional was hired in the orchestra in 2020, post George Floyd's murder. That was the first time any orchestra in the United States hired a professional to actually treat, grapple with, manage, lead, and um, uh, really do work around equity, diversity, and inclusion in orchestras. And now mind you, the New York Philharmonic is, um, was founded in 1800s. And so we're at a point in our society now where we are hearing a lot of anti-affirmative action, anti-DEI, anti-ESG rhetoric, um, and, and really trying to constrain uh, organizations, orchestras included, from doing work that is ethically and morally important, but also uh, fiscally and economically important. And so um, the last thing that I, I'd like to say is that um, orchestras don't need to be distracted by that rhetoric and, and, and those um, intentions to kind of constrain and stop them from moving forward, because especially now, it is so important that they do this work. I mean, you know, U.S. citizens believe that cultural organizations have the ability to bring people together despite their cultural and racial divides. And orchestras, I think this is an opportunity for them to lean into that particular statistic. Thank you. It has been an absolute honor to talk with you and learn from you today about your work in this report. So thank you for taking the time to join us. You all as well. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMichImpact.